to make them do it, you know, just in case, you know, but they were already kind of disenchanted and they already were kind of not believing it entirely. So, um, so the Roman church is half pagan side and half that are kind of um, jaded, shall we say, a little bit, uh, a little bit hardened against uh, spirituality a little bit because they don't really believe. They do. They do believe in it, but there's a lot of fear in it, a lot of fear, a lot of um, that kind of thing. And then, of course, the Jewish side where there's a lot of pride. So pride and fear and hardness and unbelief on the other side. So so he spends the first three chapters kind of talking about the miserable situation that man finds themselves in. And uh, he talks a lot about how the law um, can't do anything for you. And it's not meant to save you. It's only meant to really show you how bad you really are. And that the law in our world just is a matter of just shining light on the fact of what we do wrong. So... Um, you know, once again, uh, taking the driving thing as a great example, um, you know, I can drive and I'm perfectly fine and I, I feel really good about myself until I pass a speed limit sign. And then I realize I'm breaking the law <laughs> and that I'm a sinner <laughs> as far as the police care, right? So um, that's kind of that. So the, that's what the law does. It, it just tells us that we are in trouble. So, um, in fact, let's back up Romans 3.19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through law, we become very conscious of our sin. I added the word very, uh, but we, be, we become conscious of our sin. So, and uh, in a little while, they'll talk about the law some more, and uh, we're going to find that law is really, really righteous, even though it just makes us feel very unrighteous. It's a very righteous thing. So we're going to get back to that. Um, I also want to bring to your attention again, as I've been talking on Sunday mornings, that as far as Romans is concerned and, and um, kind of through our study, we're, we're deciding the, uh, and determining the fact that, that we have an internal Christianity and we have an external Christianity. We're kind of this internal, external um, paradigm going on. And internally, it's our heart and it's our, you know, everything that goes on on the inside of us, which no one knows, only you know. Okay. And what's going on on the outside is what everybody else sees. And it can either reflect what's going on in the heart or it can be a fake, right? That's called a hypocrite where, you know, it's one thing on the inside, another thing on the outside. Um, the, where I pick that up at, and let me read it out of the, um, out of the um, passion. Sorry? Well, that too. <laughs> let me read it out of the passion. Uh, let me find the right... Sorry. Sorry. Looking. Yeah, I can't find it. It all starts looking the same. Sorry, 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 sorry. But in the Passion, it makes it very, very clear about how um, God came to save our hearts and, our, you know, deal with our hearts and our actions, internal and external. Okay, so I think you're all with me on that, right? Okay, so uh, Romans 3, now verse 21. Um, so, but now a righteousness, righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Because see, up until this point, Man was trying very, very hard to strive to become right with God by their actions. Uh, the Gentile or the Jews had all their rules and regulations to fulfill, and that's what they hung their and re- their reliance on as far as becoming righteous and becoming good in front of God was all their actions and behaviors and fulfilling the law. They never could quite do it right, correct? I always feel like I kind of have to start at the beginning to get a running start to where we're headed. And I tried to start in the middle and it wasn't working. So I'm going to go back to the beginning. (laughs) 
So we're fallen from God and we're trying to, we are very unholy. God is very holy. We are trying to, we have a great desire for God. God has a very great desire for us, but there's this gulf between us and holy can't have unholy close to it. It, it would consume it because it's holy, if that makes sense. Um, you, and we can't join God in the heavens without becoming completely perfect and clean, or heaven would not be perfect anymore. If we go there, right, we'd ruin it. It wouldn't be a perfect place anymore. It wouldn't be a place where there was no more sin or, or, and no more sorrow, because that's what we carry with us in, in, inherently. So we had to have something very, very um, astronomical happen. Okay, and it couldn't be anything on our end of things because we can't do it. We're finite. We're incapable. So God took care of it. Verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been known. What does the word righteousness mean? Right. Absolutely. Rightness. Being right. Being set right in every area. Right. Just think right. And so unrighteousness is not right. Unright. Wrong in any area, right? If you're not completely right, then you're wrong. (laughs) If you're 50% right, 50% wrong, what are you? Wrong, okay. And that's basically the deal, you know, and that's where we have to keep in mind that being good enough isn't good enough. Doing our very best isn't good enough. Does that make sense? We have to be perfect to be able to fit in with a perfect God. So what does God do? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the righteousness, do I have to earn this righteousness? What can I do to get this righteousness? I want to get this righteousness. I need right. I need right. I got to get rid of my wrong. What do I got to do? Faith. Faith. Confess is coming. Right here it says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What does faith mean? If you were here on Sunday. Exactly. That's it. That's all it is. God said it. I believe it. Easy peasy, right? So God, you say it. I'm going to believe it. Easy. And what that does is prior to this part, if you could picture God down or man down here, God up here, God perfect, us imperfect, God holy, us unholy, us desiring God because we have this yearning to know who we are, what we are, where we're from, and you know, is there a God? And God's up here yearning for us because we're his object of affection, big gulf between us, right? And uh, so we are down here and we're trying so hard. We're trying to be clean and trying to do things right and trying, 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 trying on the outside. Uh, But God's just calling, first of all, for our hearts. That's the first thing he wants. That's the most important thing. He wants relationship with us. He wants us close to him. And so he sets up this thing where the way to salvation, the way to righteousness has absolutely this much external, zero. You can't do anything to become right with God. You can't do a thing. You cannot do a thing to be righteous enough for him. He's not asking for that. He's not asking for that. He's not asking for a single thing. So the worst sinner, the worst person, the worst piece of human flesh... And the best piece of human flesh, if both of them just say, Father, you know, God, you sent your only son to die for me, to take my sins away. I believe. I believe. You said it. I believe it. They are both made into the righteousness of God. No difference between them. The cross has a way of leveling all playing field, the rich, the poor, the smart, the not so smart, the privileged, the unprivileged, the drug addict, the non-drug addict, the murderer, and the nicest person on the planet are leveled at the cross. And all it requires is for us to believe God. Now, if we were able to do it on ourselves, on our own, then we could do it on our own. 
You know, the two-year-old that says, me, daddy, you know, me, I do it, I do it. And when the two-year-old says, me, I do it, I do it, you're going to find that there's a separation in relationship between you and your two-year-old, right? They go over in the corner and they're working really hard to do their very best. And you're over here going, I just want to love you. I just want to be with you. See, God knew that. So he made the very thing that causes people, that the very thing that sets them into righteousness to be something that they can't do anything on their own. They can't do it. We can't do it on our own. All we have to do is turn our hearts towards him. And when you turn your hearts towards him and you believe him, guess what you're doing? You're nestling yourself close to him. And that's what faith is. Faith is a very close, heartfelt, internal, relational thing. And that's why God made that the only way Because he wants us, he loves us, and he wants us close to him. He wants to have a relationship with him. He doesn't want us off doing our own thing, trying to be good. He wants us to nestle right in. So when you are wanting to become righteous before God, you you want to make this relationship right with God, you can't go off and do it. He wants you close to him. He wants you to join your heart with his and believe and faith, and that's it. You cannot do another thing to make it any better. It is what it is. I know this is very hard for Christians to believe because um, it just is. It's hard for humanity to believe. We would rather make it on our own. We'd rather, you know, rely on our strength and our ability. I want the punch list. I want the, I'm the list lady. And then if I see my list is done, then I know I'm good with God. No, it's a faith thing absolute faith it's absolute heart it's absolute rest and peace with him just by believing him that's all he wants you to do is believe him now remember adam and eve what was their first sin doubt unbelief did god really say that so it just makes sense that the first and only way to rectify all the mess is to turn that around and make it be faith now not doubt no longer This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Once again, absolute level playing field. There is no favorites. There's, you can't be too bad for God. You can't be, your goodness does nothing for him. You know, at this point, there's just nothing. It's just raw. Do you believe in me? Do you have faith in the work that Jesus Christ did? Yes, I do. Bam, you are in right? Religion tries to draw it away from relationship with God and put it back into the external realm. Did you pay, you know, your penance? Did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this other thing? Because the only way that we as man can judge or decide, and the Catholic Church got, fell off into all sorts of things on this, to the point where they were even, you know, if you confess to the, to the priest your sins, then you're, you're saved. And if you, if you give enough offerings and you can, you can buy people indulgences, you can buy your, your dead relatives out of hell and you can do, you know, they started putting all this stuff on you on the outside and no, no, no. And that's why Luther reformed the church. And these were his key verses by faith and only faith. Okay, I know I'm probably just repeating and repeating, but Paul takes so much time in the book of Romans to make this case. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Atonement is like a payment of, so there's actually an a payment. Uh, he did this to demonstrate his justice because his forbearance, in his forbearance, he left sins committed beforehand unpunished, and he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I could tear that apart, but we're not. We're going to supposed to get down to chapter four. When then, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observance of the law. But, uh, but no, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. See, he's making it very, very, very clear and plain. Very, very clear and plain. In fact, um, 
Luther and many, many scholars say that this right here, that sentence right there, that verse, and there was a couple of other verses that are almost identical to that, written in Romans, that are the linchpin of Christianity. And if we remove that verse out and we make it not about faith, but we make it again about how you act and how you behave on the outside, then we are removing the linchpin of Christ and his work and his, this internal relationship that God's looking for through faith, and we become external, and we go back to religion and what Paul was railing against as far as the Jews were concerned. That's one of the reasons why he has to say this so clearly constantly, because he does have half, half of the congregation is Jewish, and they're all saying, okay, so what do I need to do? Give me my list. Where's the law? See how good I did today. And he's saying, no, no more. Um, Then he kind of uh, uh, leaves us kind of hanging here. Um, Let's see. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. So verse 31 is kind of a tickler. He says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? In other words, okay, so if it's all about me just believing Jesus... And I'm going to heaven. Does he not care anything about the external? And he says, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And after we get through tonight, on Sunday, I'm going to start pulling in where the external stuff comes in. Because it is very important, but it is nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with your standing before Christ. It has everything to do with a few other things. And we're going to make that very, very clear. And it's going to make life so wonderful. If I make it clear. Okay, chapter four. What then should we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Okay, so all of a sudden, Paul throws in a guy from the Jewish past. And um, we talked a lot about that on Sunday. How many guys were here on Sunday? So y'all got Sunday. How many were not? So I know if I'm, okay, so I'm, I'm going to keep going. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. So you heard it. Okay. For what then should we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So on Sunday, I kind of took you back into Abraham. Do you all feel like you kind of got that in clarity? Yes. Anybody not understand why he's talking about Abraham? Why is he talking about Abraham? Anybody like wondering why in the world he's talking about Abraham? And it doesn't matter. It's okay. Don't feel like pressure. I don't want to be the one that goes, I don't get it. Because I think we'd all do well to hear. So Abraham. So I wish I had my little thingy up here. Actually, I would write it. So Abraham was, I'm going to give you a few things I didn't give you on Sunday then. Uh, Abraham was chosen by God. So let's turn over to Genesis. And apparently on Sunday I said Exodus. I am so sorry. You know, it's one of those things that you can be really good, but you're not perfect all the time. So, and you know, I was wondering why there were so many going. Everybody started talking. I'm like, come on, people. Listen to me. Yeah. Like that. Okay, so uh, once again, you're looking at chapter 11, and uh, you're going to see at verse 10 there, it talks about two years after the flood. So these are the three sons that came off of that ark. Remember, I, on that first night, I kind of talked a lot about those uh, Noah's descendants because uh, the humanity that we are looking at today is all descendant from Noah's three sons, okay? So Noah and then Noah's three sons and three wives were on uh, the ark, so they come out. And Shem, remember, do you remember, it's Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the sons. Do you remember what Ham, or I mean, sorry, Shem, the descendants of Shem become? Semites, Shem, Shemites, Semites, Jews. Okay, so what you have here in chapter 11 of Genesis is the account of Shem. Okay, and so this is the, the, um, genealogy of Shem, and you can read through it. Uh, it's not that interesting, but it is only because it leads you down to finally Terah becoming the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then it kind of talks about the family of Abram. 
So we, for some reason, all of a sudden, not all, we, do, we have this man emerge out of all of humanity that's very interesting to us. If you will turn in your Bible to Genesis 18, 19, it kind of gives us a clue as to why God chose him. In this passage, uh, Abraham is pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's meeting with those uh, three men who were really angels that came. And uh, it says here, when the men got up to leave, they looked down at towards Sodom, and Abraham walked, walking, walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. Now we know that because God's already promised that. And all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him. Now, if you guys remember from our Genesis series that I did a couple of whiles ago, the, the actual um, language there doesn't... See, this English makes us sound like uh, he chose him so that he will direct but some of the original language is interpreted much better. I chose him because he will direct his family. Okay. So he found in Abram a man that directs his children and his household after God and will uh, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So what God found in Abraham, now his name is Abraham, but Abram before, was a man through all that genealogy and all of the oral tradition being handed down. Not all of those generations served God. Not all of the broad, you know, this way of those generations served God. In fact, a lot of them turned away from God. But God found in Abram someone that he knew would lead his family into the things of God, that he had a heart that was um, one to lead, one to direct, that he was not going to let the things of God get lost in his generation being passed on to the next generation. And that is a clue that we have of why God chose Abram. But God chose Abram for some reason. Once again, he shows up that morning, Abram, what? This is the Lord. I'm going to make a great nation out of you and everything's going to be great and you're going to be blessed and everybody's going to be blessed through you. Can you imagine what that... You know, you'd kind of look in your cereal and go, what's in there? You know, remember um, Muppets from Space? You know, the little letters all line up. Or I, you know, I think strange things, but, you know, and I don't want to make light of God, but it was one of those moments. It's one of those God transcending into humanity there. And um, every time God talked to him, Abraham did, external. Then in Genesis 15, we find a shift. What did we find? What was that shift? He believed God. All of a sudden, God came to him, said all the same things. And that was the first time where the Bible says that Abraham believed. Then it says God credited to him his righteousness. So this shift of heart where we accept what God has to say, where we draw it into ourselves and we place ourselves within that word of God and we rest in it. That's faith, believing it, resting in it, trusting in it, leaning on it, setting upon it. And that's what God says. Okay, listen, I don't care what in the world you've done in all your life. Let's just erase it. And I'm going to put in your account now, I'm going to say righteous. He's going to take right over all of the wrongness in your history and your lineage and everything that you've done. And he's going to go and he's and credit it to his account as righteous. He's just like, bam, done. Just like that. By the shift of the heart to trust God. Now, when he does this, and let's keep looking here because this is why it's so important here. Um, after in 15, when he, he does that and it's credited to him as righteousness in 15, then you're going to find in Oh boy, where is it? I had it written down in my sermon notes. I don't have it here. A couple of chapters later, then God comes to him. He cuts a covenant with him. And he says, okay, as a seal of my covenant with you, he, he cuts the, the ram in half and they, the smoke and the fire and they walk between the halves and he cuts this covenant and says, and that's when God really lays it out that you are my 
my beloved chosen one, and I am to be your God. And then he says, as a seal of my covenant, I want you to circumcise yourself and all the males in your household and from now on. So that circumcision came after uh, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. So the real meal deal with God is belief and faith and trust. And that's what gets righteousness into our account and gets us cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. And then God came along with Abraham, Abraham and put circumcision in there. And then he took him up on the mountain and gave him the Ten Commandments. Or no, excuse me, not him, but other commandments. That's Moses, sorry. Uh, gave, sorry. I'm sorry. I've had such a day. I am so sorry. Erase that. But, um, and gave him other commandments. He, he, you're going to read you know, more that God spoke to him. But that came after his belief and faith and righteousness. And so that, that's what Paul is saying. Everything that the Jews built their righteousness on was everything that came after all the way to Moses and then the Ten Commandments, thank you very much, and everything. Sorry, people. And, you know, everything that even the Jews added to even Moses' law, you know, they added more and more and more. And Paul's going, he's just, you know, and God even is just kind of taking all that and just wiping the slate clean and said, okay, let's go back to the first part, way on back on back, where Abram believed and it was credited to righteousness. That's where it belongs. So let's go back over here to Romans. Romans 4, verse 2. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. So if we do it on our own, woohoo, look at me, write it down today, because I am good, right? But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. So if God had this set up to where we had to do everything, and if we did it just right, then we are owed this much righteousness, and he'd be up there. He'd have to have accountants all the time, you know, trying to make sure that everybody's little, little accounts are the right for everything that we prob- mostly did. And it would be something that was owed us. Come on, give it to me. See, I did it. I did it over here in my, my right arm, and I'm, I'm worth something, so now you gotta, right? But that's not how God does it. Now that a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, uh, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now he shifts over to a new guy, David. And I skipped this part on Sunday, I'm trying to go fast. But uh, then now uh, he brings out David. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man who, whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So David, now let's hear what David has. Now, how many times did I tell you, if you guys remember, how many times does Paul quote the Old Testament in the book of Romans? 84 times, either quotes or uh, refers to. So this is a, this is a full quote. Let me find it. What, chat, what verse is that? Seven. The same thing as he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So in Psalm 32, this, this quote is some, from Psalm 32. So flip over to Psalm 32. I want to show you something. There are five psalms of repentance of david's and it is believed that all five of these are written after david's trouble with bathsheba and killing uriah so you all remember david was a man after god's own heart just like just slaying it for god literally slayed goliath was just doing all sorts of really cool things and yet even him this man after god's own heart that david god was just all over him with all sorts of amazing things he saw bathsheba he fell in love with her took her to his bed and then had her husband killed and it was just awful and from that point on the sword never left his house right? That was the curse upon him. But David, being a man after his own heart, uh, seeks for repentance. 
And we find in these five passages, the five steps of David's returning back. Now, this is before Jesus and before blood, his blood and before we can cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. And so he didn't have the revelation that we have of sin and, and confession and confessing our, you know, and asking for forgiveness and repentance and, and that full forgiveness and the washing of our sins and, and justification. He didn't have all that knowledge, all that revelation like we have, but this is, he still follows this. I'm going to give you the five passages. I'm going to let you guys kind of read it by yourself. And then we're going to read the piece that's quoted here. Uh, Psalm six, Uh, David talks about how weak and weary and vexed he is. Psalm 38 speaks of um, how ill he is within himself regarding the divine punishment. Psalm 51 is a confession and a repentance psalm. And Psalm 32 is the blessedness of forgiveness. So 32 is the last of the five. So if did I give you th- five? Six? 38, 51, and 32. Okay, I didn't write down the other one then. Man. I was studying really fast this morning. So let's just do four. Maybe there was only four. I thought in my head there was five. So maybe there's only four. So there you have it. If there's another one, then I'll, I'll let you know next time we get together. But if you would read those in, in that order, you'll see the journey David took towards repentance. But 32 is the last one, the blessedness of forgiveness. So the word blessedness means um, uh, uh, the beautification of of something. If you bless something, you're going to beautify it. You're going to make it look better. You're going to bring it from its current uh, state to a better state. That is blessing it, the blessedness, okay? Um, It also talks about the attribute of good fortune, uh, making something happy or well off. So he's talking about absolutely the blessedness, uh, David is, about the man who God credits righteousness apart from works. So let's read Psalm 32. Anybody have it and want to read it out loud? Go ahead, Barbara, loud. Okay, so I want you to remember that last verse because that's going to come in, in, a, in a, at the uh, beginning of the next chapter. So hopefully we'll get there. So, um, so what, a, what an incredible moment for David when he realizes that he's actually forgiven. And that's, that's where we're at in a place of forgiveness. And, and we have to, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, we can, we can sing and dance on our, you know, that t- first time that we feel that, feel that forgiveness, that wave of forgiveness. But sometimes we can become really familiar with that. And then we kind of live our life or whatever. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves drifting so far. 
and doing whatever. So then we, we have to constantly come back to him and constantly renew that, you know, David's cry, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, and take not thy spirit from me. And, you know, that kind of thing. We have to constantly be doing that because we want to keep that relationship fresh. We don't want anything to separate. Stuff happens, you know? My dog goes for a walk, he come, you know, and it's, she's all clean when she goes out. And she comes back with a branch here, a chunk of mud there, just because she's out living the life in the world, right? And that's you, you know, that's how we live life. We get a little bit, we get a little. So we have to constantly cleanse and pure, make ourselves clean. Bef- not, that's not the right way to say, uh, keep approaching this thing in constant humility that we never let anything divide us. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not like, I mean, we're forgiven. Yes, we're forgiven, but we keep being forgiven. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And we have to just love that process. And, and you know, I don't know about you, but whenever my external wants to be naughty or even my internal is like, oh, Father, repent, I repent, I repent, always, always. Chapter 9, this in, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under this, what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? We've already kind of talked about that, didn't we? It was not after but before, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then... He's the father of all who believe and not who have just been circumcised. So now what, what Paul is doing, he's saying, okay, all you people that are Jews over here, you get this. But now we've backed this thing up so far that it's before Judaism. Now it's just whoever believes. And that's anybody in this room, both pagan, Roman, Jude, Greek, whatever, whoever you are. Now, now Christianity is becoming very inclusive of the whole world. Okay. Uh, let's see, where am I at? What number? Chapter 12, or verse 12. Let's do verse 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he's like, yeah, he's, he's even the father of you Jews. But remember where Abraham really started. So make sure you're walking like that. In other words, believing in faith internal. It was not through the law that Abraham and his it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received a promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath. How come the law brings wrath? then you're going to sin. So the law, okay, remember what wrath is. Somebody remind me what wrath is. Remember the very first Sunday. Violent passion against anything that's going to harm the thing that he is so passionately in love with. Okay, you are the object of his affection, right? And he wants nothing but the absolute best, top-notch, 100% best for you. And he loves you just like you love your children. How many of you guys love your kids? How many of you hate it if anything brings them down even a half of a tiny bit of a notch? What if your children come home with marijuana in their pocket? Are you going to be happy? Why? You're going to be mad? Why? Do you hate them? What do you hate? The marijuana in their pocket. <laughs> but you know what? If the marijuana that you hate is in their pocket and you let out your wrath upon the marijuana and it's in their pocket, guess who's going to catch some of the wrath? Because they are, they are intertwined with it. Does that make sense? So God is after the sin, not the sinner. But when we are involved in sin, that puts us in the way of wrath. And you're going to find here in a few more verses, he's going to talk about that, that we're, well, actually, was it before or after? I can't remember now. I'm getting confused. Where he says we're storing up wrath for ourselves. Oh, I think it's in chapter um, 
1, the beginning of 2. But So we have to understand God's wrath. Why does God have wrath? Because he's a just God. He is holy, very perfect and pure, but he's also just. So therefore, all sin must be judged. And God hates sin because it's harming you. And so wrath is going to go forth with his judgment. And, and you know, it all kind of turns into a ball of wax there, right? So let's read here again. The law brings wrath. Why does the law bring wrath? What does the law do once again from the beginning of this chapter or the end of last chapter? It's the thing that is the measuring stick of us with righteousness. And when it's put up against us, it shows that we fall short. The law does. His rules. Remember? Okay, let's remind ourselves. What does the word law mean? This is a weird word. It's a Jewish word. We're not Jews. What do we care about the law other than to not rob banks, don't shoot each other, and, you know, drive the speed limit? What's the law? Remember, I gave you that word picture. Okay. Yes. So you come to my house. I express myself in my home the way we live in our home. And so my children, when they come home, when they were little, they would have to, what were some of the things they'd have to do? Because that's my culture and my customs in my house. What are those? Wash their hands, take off their shoes, hang up their backpack, you know, yada, yada. And there were other rules that I didn't tell you. They can't hit each other. They can't spit at each other. They can't harm each other's things. You know, there was, there was, there's customs and rules in my house that are not just between me and them. It's between them and them. And that's what makes my home my home. And I love what I am. And, and when my kids come home, I have established these things because I'm trying to make my home a place where they can come in and be amazing. I don't want them to have cold germs, so I want them to wash off the germs, you know. <laughs> I don't want dirt in my home so we can run around in our socks and our bare feet and not have grit and grime. You know, it's, it's to make everything better. So basically, the laws, what we're talking about, it's God's culture. He made this world. He is expressed in this world. He brought us into this world and made it the best, coolest thing. And so he's got all these kind of customs in God's world that cause us to be bettered. It makes us better. We're better when we don't lie. We're better when we don't commit adultery. We're better. It's so much better for us. And that's what this law is. Okay? But... If my kids, all the relationship I had with them is my custom, that they come in my house and act proper, but they never connect with me. See, that's where God was having this issue with the Jews. They, they did all the rules and the regulations and the customs and all that, but they were far from God's heart. God, God was calling out to them, and they're like, I'm busy. Internal, external, right? So let's keep going. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. What promise are we talking about? Well, yes, we're talking about two things. We're talking about Abraham. So first of all, Abraham, the promise for Abraham is that he was going to have many children and that he was going to be a, a blessing, and his nation, his name was going to be great, and the nation was going to be great, and God was going to bless the whole world through him, and that you know all this. So that's the promise. We're kind of talking about the promise then, but now we're believing about. The, we're talking also about the promise of Jesus Christ's blood dying on the cross, so that we can be made holy and justified and brought up into into you know to be seated in high places, heavenly places with Him. Right? That's a promise as well. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, so this would be the Jews, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. So they're not Jews, but they are stepping in where Abraham stepped in at the very beginning. Does that make sense? That would be you guys. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And then he he says some of the most powerful statements here that I just, that we all hang so much on. So many sermons have been preached on. 
He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were. So that is the most powerful thing. That is one of God's promises, that he gives life to the dead. And I, I explained on Sunday that there is, he is the only, only being that gives life. We have tried and tried and tried and tried. We cannot. So giving life is God's prerogative. It is not our prerogative. This is one thing we cannot do. No matter how hard we try, they've set up experiments and done all sorts of things and made it in just the right, and they've created one amino acid. And that amino acid actually actually fell apart right away afterward. <laughs> and how many amino acids are in us? I mean, you know, it's just like ridiculous. It's not going to happen. And even if you have an amino acid, that doesn't mean it has life. It's just a chemical. But it's a building block of what we have to have for life. But we have never been able to create life. Talk to, the, talk to the couple who is, who, who is barren. No matter how hard they try, they can't make life. And, you know, talk to the people who do get pregnant. They really didn't have a whole lot to do with what happened in a lot of ways. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it happens. And we can't make it happen, but God does. And that's what he does. He breathes life. He breathes life into dead wombs. He breathes life into dead... Um, lives and dead dreams and dead everything. He's the one that quickens life to everything. He's the one that breathed in the nostrils of Adam as he was, after he was created and brought life to him. He did not live until God breathed into him, until God made that, that final step of breathing the Zoe breath of life into him and imparting that to him. So God is the only one that could impart life. And he states here that he will uh, bring life to, those, to that which is dead, gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they were, that are not as though they are. And remember on Sunday, I, I made it very clear to you that he doesn't call those things that are as though they're not. He says he calls those things that are not as though they are. And then we, we get this great little thing that preaches so good. Against all hope, Abraham hoped and believed. Now, why do they, why does he kind of, why do they word it that way? Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew text and in writing, if they're trying to make a very, very strong statement, they'll bring it out to the opposite and then they'll do it the positive way. So they, they assert the opposite to make it feel stronger. So against, against all hope, and another word there for hope is probability. So you can say against all probability, there was no probability for this thing to happen. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. So Abraham's job here was what? To believe. God was going to do all the rest. So didn't Abraham have the easiest part? Didn't, doesn't, doesn't Abraham have the easiest part just to believe? And then God does all the rest. Well, how about us? Our part in any promise that God gives you is to what? Believe. And trust in him. That's, you know, that's the, sometimes he'll give us direction that we need to step out and do this and that or whatever. But, you know, all of that is done in faith as well. But why is it the hardest thing on the planet to keep believing? Why? Because we think too much. Can I just remind you of Genesis 1? We have an enemy who knows that the most important thing is that our hearts are engaged in faith with God and belief with God. And that if God says it, we believe it. And, and when that happens, there is a union between us and God that is beyond. Satan hates it. So what did Satan do? Once again, what was his first approach? To plant doubt. So the first approach of Satan is always to wrestle our belief away. Wrestle us down. Wrestle it. Question it. Shake it. Vibrate it. Do anything. Look at here. Look at there. What if? And he does he really? Did he really say that? Did he, does he really care about that? That is how he works all the time. So he's always trying to wrestle you away from that. That's why it's the hardest thing. But in reality, it's the easiest thing. We have the easiest part. 
So let's hear. So shall your offspring be without weakening. So this is uh, number 19. Without weakening in his faith. And I'm going to read it off of here because I have so many fun little things to say. Hold on. Without weakening in his faith, he did not get discouraged or was induced to, to disbelieve. Okay. Without weakening in his faith, he did not get discouraged or induced to disbelieve. In his faith... He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He didn't waver. So we don't weaken and he didn't waver. Two different kind of different things. Waver, the word waver means to stagger. So uh, some of the, I think the King James says he did not stagger. He staggered not. I can't remember which, as I was reading it, there was quite a few um, translations. He staggered not. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So he staggered not. He doesn't call into question the truth of the promise. He just believes it. He just believes it. It's not his job to make it happen. He just believes it. When he took it upon himself to make it happen, what happened? A nightmare that we're still dealing with. But instead, he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Instead, he entertained high and honorable thoughts of God's power and faithfulness. I really like that. One of the commentaries said that, and I like that. So instead of wavering in unbelief. Oh, I'm just getting slain in my own heart right now. I mean, you know, do, you, do you guys realize how hard it is to be the preacher? Because you know what? We're just human. That just have to sit around all week and read. <laughs> Not just, but we, we study this and then we're slain in our hearts for the times, you know. I mean, so what I'm teaching to you is me too. You know what I mean? So always feel the humility that's coming. Instead of uh, that, he entertained high and honorable thoughts of God's power and his faithfulness. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Um, I'm going to read a little bit out of a commentary that I read. Um, this. Hmm. If you turn over, Gen- okay, let me, I don't know if I want to go there. Genesis seventeen seventeen, I believe. Um, that's when the angel, you know, the, the visitors came to Abraham, Abram, and said again to him, you know, by this time next year, Sarah will be pregnant. And the passage says that Abraham laughed. And then uh, we hear a few verses later that Sarah laughed. And there was two different laughs. These were two different laughs. The laugh of Abraham was a rejoicing in the promise that was given him and the words that these people, these men were saying to him. It was a laugh of, oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be so cool. It's a rejoicing in the promise. Now, you know that when Sarah laughed, it was a scoffing laugh. And that scoffing laugh caused pain for her. Do you want to read it? Do you believe me? 17. When Abraham was 99 years old and the Lord appeared to him and he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me blameless and I will confirm my covenant between you. And he changes his name. Just a minute. 17. Oh, 17. Uh, actually, let's start at 15. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you will no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah and I will bless her and I will surely give you a son by her and I will bless her so that she will be a mother of many nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down and he laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to, to 
God, if only Ishmael can live under your blessing, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, he kind of goes on, uh, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac through whom Sarah will bear you. And on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all that was born circumcised him. Where does it talk about Sarah? Oh, the next chapter. Um, Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, I will have this pleasure. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now? Um, So uh, I will return. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yep, you did laugh. Remember that? So two different laughs. One laugh is rejoicing in the promise and excited for it. It's a faith-filled rejoicing and a laugh. The other was a doubt-filled laugh. What? You've got to be kidding. I've been, leaving, I've been believing all these years, and I am dead now. Yeah, right. Ha, ha. See the difference? Um, verse 21, now back to Romans. I'm just having fun, you guys. Do you mind? (laughs) Wait a minute. Where's 21? Then being fully, uh, let's see. He strengthened his faith and gave glory to God. Then fully, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. What what did we say on Sunday about his God's power? What does the word believe mean when Abraham believed? Remember, it means to believe and trust and all those regular words, but it also means to go to the right Do you remember that? Go to the right. What does go to the right mean? The right hand, the right arm of a person always constituted the power side of them, the strength, their authority, their sovereignty. Everything that they had the ability to do is shown in their right hand. That's why when fathers would bless their sons or confer the blessing, they would put the right hand on their son's that's why so many of the um, the blood sacrifices, they were supposed to put in the right thumb and the right ear and the right toe. This, the right means the strength. That's where the, and so what it said there, what he's saying is that Abraham said, okay, yeah, cool. You're going to make me all this stuff. But he looked at, Ab- at God and said, you know what? Your right arm is so strong. I believe you can do it. So Abraham's faith made him look at God's arm and he came to the conclusion that I don't know how you're going to do it it's not my job to make it happen but I know that your arm is strong enough to make it happen therefore I'm just going to rely in it and be okay being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is why. This is why. This is why. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Because he believed, he knew God could do it, and that God would do it, and that God, and then he, he quit worrying and fussing and fidgeting, and, and he totally believed, and that's what we're supposed to do. The words, it was credited to him, were written not only for him alone, but also for us. Now, I want you to remember how many hundreds and thousands and millions of people have read this story, have read this passage. Think about it. How many generations? How much theology has come out of this passage? How much? I mean, we're sitting here reading it and going, oh, what a cute story. But in reality, this, and, and it's challenging. How many of you guys are challenged with this? I am challenged with this. How many, how many hundreds of thousands and millions of human beings seeking after God, learning God, Christianity, all of this kind of thing, have read this passage and gone, oh, I get it now. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it was just a little exchange between him and God, but God said, no, I'm going to make this whole situation an absolute beautiful testimony example for every soul to come. So these words weren't written just for him. They were written for us too. 
but for, for also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Hallelujah. Faith. The passage now is going to have a bunch of rejoices in it. So let me give you, uh, let me tell you what rejoice means. Rejoice has two pieces to it. It means to be full of cheer. That's the first part. It means to abound and be saturated, having within its limits all that it can hold. And you, you shout with joy. You, are, you rejoice. You're just like, ah! What, do you do? what did you do when you were a kid and you got your f- most favorite Christmas present? Did you stay quiet about it? Okay, so part of the word rejoice means to use your mouth and talk. Words, boast. It means to talk about it. So... Rejoice in the Lord means to go, I can't believe what happened about the goodness of God. You're supposed to use your mouth to be excited about him, to talk about him, and to be rejoicing. Okay? But there's another piece of rejoice that's an inner piece. It's an inner place of rejoicing. And it's actually a calm, happy. It's without agitation, without that fear. So outward rejoicing, laughing happy, stating the things that are good, talking a lot about boasting about God, and then that inner quiet peace. Now, as we go into chapter five on Sunday, we're going to talk some more about rejoicing and what that really means and when we're supposed to rejoice.